and welcome to episode 22 of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five-O podcast. I am your hot as hell host, Kristen Hawes, aka Kiki Writes. We're just plugging right along through season two. We've got two more episodes. Episode 18, Killer B, and episode 19, The One with the Gun. Shout out and big thanks to Shan, also known as Rusting Willpower. She provided me with the sound clips for this episode, which turned out to be a huge lifesaver for me because my dumbass decided to do two episodes of two different podcasts in the same week, which unsurprisingly did not go as well as I thought it would. But curiously, both episodes involved a lot of chloroform, so maybe it was truly meant to be. Anyway, the takeaway here is I have no concept of time, and the planning fallacy kicks me in the ass every single time. Okay, let's go to Hawaii. What's it look like, Colonel? No footprints outside. All cement and asphalt. No ransom note. Well, children have been kidnapped for reasons other than money. It's a modest home. Low to middle income. Lots of expensive-looking places not far away. Why here? Steve. Hey, smell of this. Chloroform. Steve! Just came over the radio. A ransom note was delivered to HPD. Let's go. Season 2, Episode 18, Killer B. Air date January 21st, 1970. Directed by Paul Stanley. This is the third of 19 for him. And written by Anthony Lawrence. This is the third of nine for him. George shows up to Ted's house in the middle of the night and finds a chloroformed boy on his couch. George wakes up Ted and points out the kidnapped kid. Apparently, this isn't the first time something like this has happened. Ted is on medication, but it seems he's relapsing, having blackouts. George gives Ted something to help him sleep, insisting that he'll take care of the kid to keep him out of trouble. George takes the boy and drops him off in a field where he'll be safe and found. 5-0 shows up to assist HPD in this kidnapping investigation. Mom went to check on Davey in the middle of the night and found him gone. Kono says no footprints were found outside and no ransom note was left. Dano points out the chloroform left on the boy's pillow. Chin Ho hurries in and tells the team that a ransom note was delivered to 5-0 headquarters. As Davey wakes up in the field, Steve and Danny meet with Mrs. Watson at the office. She found the ransom note in her mailbox, but otherwise has no connection to the boy. She's a real delight, positively put out by being dragged into this, as she doesn't know the family and certainly has no son. She leaves, and the team discusses how this kidnapping ties in to some others. Steve has Kono check the pharmacies for any recent chloroform purchases and has Chin look into Mrs. Watson, while Danny works on the ransom note. Steve is suspicious about the ransom demand. The drop is due today, which is too soon, and not for a lot of money by kidnap standards. It's a daylight drop, and there's no warning to keep the cops away. It was almost like the kidnapper didn't care if he got caught. George wakes Ted up again. It's now four in the afternoon. He assures Ted that he took care of the boy, leaving him in a field on the other side of the island, but Ted still worries that something could happen to him. George shows Ted the newspaper report about the kidnapping, which mentions that the ransom note was left in Mrs. Watson's mailbox. Mrs. Watson is Ted's mother. It seems that Ted previously kidnapped a boy because he fantasized that he was the child, thinking that if his mother thought he was in danger, then she'd love him, something he was told when he was recently in the hospital. 
Ted breaks down at the news. Five-O stakes out the ransom drop, but there's no sign of any kidnapper. Kono finally calls in to let Steve and Danny know that Davy was found safe in a pineapple field. Meanwhile, George sneaks into Ted's house carrying an unconscious boy. He puts him on the couch before waking up Ted, telling him that he's done it again. Ted is absolutely distraught. He wants to go back to the hospital, but George won't let him, saying they'll lock him up and throw away the key, and he won't let that happen. George owes Ted for saving his life in Vietnam, but Ted can't remember that. He's blocked it all out. George assures him that he'll take care of the kid once again. Speaking of hospitals, Steve and Danny talk to Davy after the doctor checks him out. He can't remember anything except waking up in the field. Steve gets a call that another boy has been kidnapped and goes to talk to his parents. Unsurprisingly, Danny receives word that Mrs. Watson received another ransom note. When they talk to her at the office again, Mrs. Watson is just as delightful as before, not wanting to be involved. But Danny shows Steve the file on her, which shows that she is involved. She changed her name and lied about having a son. Ted was 16 when he kidnapped that first boy. When he was released from the hospital, he enlisted, went to war, came back, and went back into the hospital. He was only released earlier that year. Mrs. Watson says that her son was always sick, constantly demanding her attention. He turned against her when he was older, doing crazy things just to hurt her. She knew the note was from Ted trying to hurt her again. The latest kidnapping victim is found safe, and an APB is put out on Ted. Danny talks to a psychiatrist that worked with Ted while he was in the hospital. It seems that Ted's mother stopped giving him attention when he was too young, and it caused him to resent and hate her. They felt Ted was a good risk to go back into society. They thought he had a psychotic break due to a trauma from the war, which severely impacted his memory. The doctor suggests that Danny talk to someone else who works in the hospital who knew Ted much better. George. It seems that George is a psychiatric technician at the hospital, and though he answers Danny's questions, he lies about having served with Ted or seen him after he was discharged. While Chin Ho chases down typewriters in an attempt to identify which one wrote the ransom notes, Steve and Danny go to talk to Mrs. Watson at her house, asking if she has anything of Ted's. She reluctantly points them to a footlocker from his service days, which contains a picture of Ted and George together. Danny tells Steve that George lied. Ted finds his mother at the cemetery visiting her late husband's grave. He begs her for her help, but she rejects him. Ted runs off, his mental state further deteriorating. Back at his place, George watches Ted talk in his sleep, reliving an incident from the war, something to do with a suicide mission and George. George gets a knife, cuts himself, and then wakes up Ted by pretending to struggle with him. George accuses Ted of attacking him. He tells him that he's deranged and should go back to the hospital and be locked up forever. The barrage of hostility pushes Ted into a catatonic state, which he may not come out of. So naturally, I take notes for every episode that I watch for the podcast, and some episodes have more notes than others. This episode doesn't have a whole lot of notes, but the biggest note I have on this is, who is the worst, George or Ted's mother? And after watching this episode a second time, I can tell you right now, it's Ted's mother. The big reason for that is there are two big twists in this episode. The first one I covered in the synopsis and that you're led to believe to a certain point that Ted is the one kidnapping these little boys because he has a history of it. We see George come in at the beginning and find a chloroformed kid on his couch. So there's no reason to suspect that poor Ted isn't having some sort of a mental relapse from his issues 
and he's blacking out and committing these crimes until we see the first big twist, which is George is the one who's doing this and making Ted think that he's doing this. So it's really easy to hate George right then because his motivations at that point look completely sinister. He is taking advantage of the mental state of Ted and you don't know why. And it gets worse when you have the big reveal of he works in the psychiatric hospital that Ted was in. So now it's a question of what the hell is the point of this? Is he just this cruel that he is using what he knew, knows about Ted that he learned from working in the hospital with him to do this to him? And when you get the little bits of, oh, you saved my life in Vietnam, it's really more intriguing and you're asking, why the hell is George so evil? When you get to the second twist, which is spoiler territory, you understand a little bit more what's going on, where it comes from. I won't say that it casts George in a more sympathetic light, but it makes him less evil. There's less malice, I suppose, behind it. There's more of a reason. Meanwhile, you have Ted's mother, who is just a stone-cold bitch from the word go. The way she talks about her son is just awful. They shouldn't have let him out. They shouldn't have. Why not, Mrs. Watson? He's sick. He's always been sick from the day he was born. Sick in what way? Demanding. Always demanding. As if I didn't have enough running that big house. You don't know what it was like. He hung on me like some kind of little animal. I couldn't move without him underfoot. Demanding my attention every 24 hours, yelling, screaming. When I went out, when I talked to anyone. And then he turned against me when he got older. doing crazy things to hurt me. I didn't resent it. I tried to be a good mother. She basically describes this small child as some sort of a demanding parasite, when in actuality, he was probably like a toddler. Toddlers need a lot of attention. She didn't want that. And honestly, the best part is the look on Steve's face when she says, I tried to be a good mother because he's, he looks at her like, mm, I think no. But you get this feeling from her that she never wanted kids. She never wanted to have Ted. Ted was a, a terrible inconvenience. And the fact that she basically tried to wean him off of her attention at a very young age, and he did not respond the way she wanted him to, he was defective and broken. And then he turned on her. And even the doctor at the psychiatric hospital said that it transformed into a kind of hate and resentment and kind of placed the onus on Ted when really she basically neglected him. That's not Ted's fault. It's not Ted's fault that his mom was such garbage. And especially when it's happening to him when he's such a young child. And so her thing is that he acted out just to hurt her. Again, making everything about her and placing all the blame on Ted. And you see that even more later in the episode when Ted finally finds his mom at the graveyard where she's visiting her husband's grave and he calls her out on it. I suppose you'd care more about me if I was dead, huh? 
You never cared about Papa when he was alive. But now you come here every Wednesday. You would even miss if it was raining. So this woman basically never wanted to be married, never wanted to have kids, at least not to have the responsibility of that because she felt that everything was demanding of her attention and she wanted the trappings, I guess, of that life to have a husband and to have a child, but not to have any of the responsibility of that is kind of how it comes across as me. Basically, she's a real neglectful cow and an awful person. And when it comes down between George and Mrs. Watson, she's the one that I hate the most because she screwed up her kid. Poor Ted did not have a chance. As we hear about his past and the fact that he was so broken by his mother's neglect that he kidnapped some kid and fantasized that it was him and sent his mom the ransom note, thinking that if she thought he was in danger, she would care. And it turned out she really didn't. So you already have someone who's in a very strained mental state. He goes to the hospital when he's a teenager. When he gets out, he enlists and ends up being sent to Vietnam probably not the best decision because this man has already suffered a severe trauma and now he's going into a situation that breeds traumas. War is an incredibly traumatic event and he ended up fighting in some very serious battles over there and apparently sent on a suicide mission at one point which got him wounded and got him sent home. So he then experiences a second incredibly traumatic event that causes a psychotic break that basically eliminates his memory of the event. He's got it, he completely blocks it out because it's so painful. And what he does upon coming home and getting discharged is he enters back into the hospital. The thing about Ted, which makes all of this so much worse, is that Ted is trying very hard to be better. He gets out of the hospital when he's 16. He enlists in the military. He's trying to better his life. He comes out of the military. He knows he needs help. He goes back into the psychiatric hospital to get that. He gets discharged. And when these kidnappings start happening again and he thinks he's responsible, his first response is to go back to the hospital. He's trying to take care of himself. And you have George there who interferes for his own gain. But the point is, is he's trying to take responsibility for his mental health. He knows he needs help. And he, he wants to get it. He sincerely wants to get it. Unfortunately, he is a terrible friend. Now, what's interesting about all of this is this time in 1970, the understanding of mental illnesses by the general public and, of course, as it's portrayed on television and stuff, is still kind of questionable. Usually what we see portrayed is the extreme stuff like what we have here, which is Ted having a psychotic break. And the language that's used in regards to this by the psychiatrist is really, really outdated. They keep saying that he's schizophrenic. Ted's not really schizophrenic, definitely not textbook schizophrenic, at least according to my limited community college knowledge of all of the psych classes I took. They kind of use schizophrenic as a catch-all for anybody who has any kind of psychosis. Ted really doesn't have that, and in fact, what Ted is going through right now is actually manufactured. He's still dealing with the effects of his mother basically not loving him and neglecting him, and he's dealing with the after effects of the trauma of war, which is totally PTSD. Back then, they called it, I think by Vietnam, they called it combat fatigue. And basically, the treatment for that was you went on R&R for a little while and you were supposed to be better. They didn't really get to the roots 
of it as much unless it was a very severe case, which obviously Ted's is. But for a lot of the veterans, a lot of them had PTSD, but nobody called it that. And that happened in World War II. It happened in Korea. It happened in World War I. It is not a new phenomenon. Just the name changed and the understanding changed. So while the episode itself, for the time that it's set in in 1970, is trying to be very forward, modern, thinking, very open about the discussion of mental illness and what's going on with Ted, in hindsight, it's pretty inaccurate, but good try. And this would actually prove to be kind of a trend going through the 70s of dealing with the fallout of the Vietnam War and the soldiers that were affected by it. We've already seen this happen in the first season with King of the Hill. We're seeing it again now. We will see it a few more times throughout the run of the series, I'm pretty sure. And we will also see other episodes dealing with mental illness later on in, in the run of the series. Now, in this case, it's the approach to it is a little more sympathetic than in some of the other episodes that I know we'll see. But for the most part, this show actually did a decent job of showing that not everyone with a mental illness is evil and that it's a much more complex issue than people realized. So while we have all of this going on with Ted, George manipulating Ted, Ted's mom being a total bitch, and poor Ted just suffering through all of this, we have 5-0 doing their thing, treating this very much like a standard kidnapping. One that happens to be related to a couple of other kidnappings because they mention it, the chloroform is the tie-in. This is not the first time this has happened. And so they're looking at this like it's a string of kidnappings. There's just no rhyme or reason to it. This latest kidnapping, the kid is from a middle-income family. They don't have a whole lot of spare cash. The ransom note is questionable because there's not a whole lot of time before the drop. They're asking for a lot of money for that family because it was like $500 or something, which would have been a lot of money in 1970 and a lot of money for a middle-income family at that time, but not a lot of money by kidnapping standards. There's also the fact that it's a daytime drop and it says nothing about keeping the police away or not contacting the police. Just saying that if they don't get the money, they're going to kill the kid. And the note being dropped in some random, apparently random lady's mailbox is all suspicious. But they follow through, they go to the drop, they stake it out. We get to see a random undercover cop wearing the ugly Aloha shirt. That is a staple of this show. And one of my favorite, favorite things about this show is that whenever they go undercover, they have to wear an ugly Aloha shirt. I was so happy to see it. Anyway, they stake out the drop. Nothing happens at the drop. And then the call comes in that Davy's been found safe. This is where the timeline gets weird because the drop is at like five o'clock in the evening, I think. I have no idea what time of year this is, so I don't know when the sun would be setting, but it's in the evening. They get the call that Davy's been found. They go to the hospital, assuming that they go to the hospital because we see them there talking later. Meanwhile, it cuts from that to George. It's now nighttime. George bringing in the next kidnapping victim and putting him on the couch. So it's after dark now, and you have to think if the kid was in bed, it's got to be past 8 or 9 o'clock. And you would think that the parents would also be asleep. So it, you, you think it's going to be late. Okay. And then we cut back to them questioning Davy at the hospital. So it's like, what time is this? How is this working out? That cut is just really weird on when they're questioning him. I don't know. Maybe they were questioning him the next day. I guess that could be possible. Because the call comes in while they're at the hospital that another boy's been kidnapped. So it's entirely possible that Davy was in the hospital 
overnight. The doctor finally let him see him the next morning. And that's when the call comes in that the next kid was kidnapped and, and George can, did the kidnapping overnight. I don't know. The timeline is just kind of wonky. It's not definitive, I suppose. But anyway, we do get a cute scene of Steve and Danny talking to Davey at the hospital. Steve with kids is one of my favorite things. Almost as good as ugly undercover Aloha shirts. But him talking to Davey was really sweet. But unfortunately, Davey can't give any information. Then they have to go talk to the next round of parents for the next kidnapping. And while they're talking to them at 5 headquarters, the call comes in that Mrs. Watson has received another ransom note. So Steve and company get to talk to her again. Now, the first time they talked to her, Steve suspected her because of the way she acted. And he has this great look on his face when she leaves the first time. He goes to the door and opens it for her and says, thank you for coming in. And when he shuts the door, he gives this look like, wow, ain't she a bitch? He's not wrong. So when she comes in the second time for the second note, that's when Chen Ho comes up with the information that she's changed her name. She's basically disowned her son and that she's a real shit parent, even though she plays it off like she's not. And then it's all Ted's fault. And again, Steve isn't really buying it, especially when he goes to put the APB out on Ted and asks his mother if she has any pictures of him. And she says, oh yes, lots. And they're all ugly. At that point, Steve is never going to like her. Never. And neither am I. So now that 5 knows that they're dealing with someone who had, who's basically in a mental health crisis. Danny goes to talk to the psychiatrist at the hospital and he gives a very interesting explanation of what exactly is going on in Ted's mind. I'm only a little bit fuzzy about Ted's condition when he was first brought in here. Uh, amnesia, schizophrenia, it's complicated stuff. Very true, complicated. It's difficult for us all to understand. Ted's disorder might be described as similar to the experience of his driving a car with a bee buzzing around his head. At first, the bee was just an annoyance, a minor distraction. But as the bee persisted, threatened Ted with greater harm, more of his energies had to be spent in self-defense. Less was left over to cope with the problems of safe driving. When the bee finally stung Ted, he lost control of his vehicle and crashed. I see. Very interesting. It's a useful analogy, despite its descriptive limitations. A schizophrenic is, in one sense, being attacked by a psychological bee, a bee that disorganizes his control over the course of his life. So this is obviously where we get the title of the episode from, and it's also an interesting, like, layman's description of exactly what's going on with him and what's happening. Something that the audience could understand. Well, yes, I've been trapped in a car with a bee before. It's hard to concentrate on driving when you know that's there. It's a great analogy, I think, to help people who otherwise wouldn't understand. It puts it in a perspective that they can grasp a hold of, and it helps to make Ted even more sympathetic than he already is. But of course, also when Danny goes to talk to the psychiatrist, he finds out that George is there. That comes into play later when they go to Mrs. Watson's house and asks if she has any of Ted's things, which at first she denies because she, she's like done. She makes it clear that she wants them to find Ted and put him back in the hospital where he belongs because he is sick. But she wants to make absolutely no effort to help them do that. And so when they go and question her again, she is just as delightful as before and swears she doesn't have anything of his, but then remembers, oh yes, there's a footlocker of his 
that he had when he was serving and she put it in the storage closet. So she hates this kid so much she got rid of all of his shit and the one thing she has she shoved in a place behind the damn Christmas decorations to be forgotten. So Stephen, Danny find it. They pull out this footlocker and it's great because it looks like a footlocker that a serviceman would use. There's, you know, all of his stuff. He's got a bunch of medals, a purple heart, stuff like that. But in the top lid of it, there's a bunch of pinups. There's pictures and there's pinup girls in it, which Steve finds very amusing. But he, they find the picture of Ted and a couple other people at a nightclub in Saigon. And one of those people is George. And that's when they find out that George was lying. So naturally, Steve gets every, wants everything on George. And we find out that George is like a huge hero. And the story he told Ted about what happened at that incident in Vietnam doesn't match up with what the report was in that George says that he was shot in the gut and paralyzed and Ted carried him out even though he was wounded. But the the official military report on that was George's entire like squad, I think, was wiped out and he was the only he they thought he was the only one that who survived until they found Ted half dead. So there you you start to get the inkling that okay, part of George's motivation is that something happened in Vietnam that Ted knows but nobody else knows. And part of George's motivation is keeping that secret. And that is further evidenced when he stages the attack on himself, which is great because he's watching Ted talking asleep because Ted can't actively remember what happened in Vietnam. But obviously he has nightmares about it. And he's mumbling about a suicide mission, about how they can't go up this hill. And he starts yelling about George. George, what are you doing? So George ends up cutting himself and then he wakes up Ted by like putting the knife in Ted's hand and acting like he's grappling with him about it. If you've ever watched professional wrestling the the rule is you're only as good as your cell. So if you have two wrestlers going at it and one wrestler is obviously better than the other the only way it works is if the better wrestler really sells the not as good wrestler. That's basically what's going on here is that Ted is out of it. He's waking up to this fight having no idea what's going on and George is selling it he is like struggling and fighting against him and making it I mean just going for it with all he he's got and confusing the hell out of Ted when he finally gets the knife away from Ted he makes this big production of saying you attacked me you tried to kill me what's wrong with you you're crazy you're sick they should lock you up and the way they do it I mean it's just like a barrage of hostility thrown at Ted and they do a quick cut back and forth between Ted's face and George's face back and forth back and forth it made me think of episodes of the monkeys they would do that a lot until finally at the end of this Ted is catatonic so it looks like whatever that incident was in Vietnam is going to be trapped in Ted's head forever and 5 will never find out about it. No one will ever find out about it. It'll just be George and Ted. And George is never going to tell. But of course, he doesn't factor in Steve McGarrett. I will give one word of warning for the climax when Steve is going at George. Because we know that Steve is going to eventually confront George with his lies and deception. He does end up during this, and it will make sense if you watch it, he does end up during this using a racial slur that was very common at the time, especially when referring to the Vietnamese. 
it makes sense in the context of the scene and in the context of the time that the episode was done, but it is still unpleasant. But you know what's not unpleasant? Our guest cast. So let's take a look at them. George Loomis was played by David Arkin. He was Gabriel Kay on Minute Law. He was also in episodes of Medical Story and Whitney and the Robot. He turned up in the movies Popeye, Cannonball, All the President's Men, Nashville, The Long Goodbye, Up in the Cellar, I Love You, Alice B. Toklas, The Summer Children, and he was in the movie MASH. He was a Robert Altman frequent flyer. Ted Frazier was played by Jeff Pomerantz. He was Eric Tyler on Santa Barbara and Dr. Peter Jansen on One Life to Live. He also turned up in episodes of Combat, Lassie, Mod Squad, Mission Impossible, The Rookies, McCloud, Gunsmoke, Fantasy Island, Magnum P.I., Quincy, T.J. Hooker, Automan, Dynasty, The Fall Guy, Hunter, and Fresh Off the Boat. He was in the movies Home is Where the Killer Lives, Retribution, Cheech and Chong's Nice Dream, and Savage Weekend. And he was in the TV movies The Tenth Level and Baby of the Bride. Mrs. Watson was played by Doreen Lang. This is her second of two episodes. She was also in the first season episode, Uptight. Dr. Wong was played by Chapman Lamb. This is his only credit. Daniels was played by Douglas Mossman. This is his fourth of 27 episodes. We saw him in three first season episodes. David Emery was played by Harold Best. This is his only credit. Enid Emery, David's mom, was played by Peggy Ann Sigmund. This is her first of six episodes. She was also in episodes of Magnum P.I. and Lost. And Wade Emery, David's dad, was played by Joseph Stewart, and this is his only credit. And that is Killer Bee. I really do like this episode in the sense that it keeps you guessing. We have 5-0 treating this like a traditional case while we know that it is anything but. When we do get that switch, when they realize it's anything but, we get to see how they switch tracks to find Ted. And it's less about apprehending him for his crimes, but to keep him safe and to get him help. And like I said, Ted's mom, total bitch. And the second twist really makes this worth a watch. I have a feeling we've been had, Denno. Yeah, but why? By whom? Or is it who? <laughs> now I'd like to know what happened. Apparently your brother was in a high-stakes poker game. Somebody shot him, that's all we know at the moment. But you'll find out who murdered him. We usually do, Mr. Coleman. Now what can you tell me about your brother? What can I tell you? He was 26 years old, married only a couple of months. He wasn't much more than a kid, McGarrett, just starting to live. This trip was my present to kind of a honeymoon. I don't want the guy who did this to get away with it. Neither do I. Thank you, Mr. McGarrett. Here's my card. Keep in touch. Episode 19, The One with a Gun, air date January 28th, 1970, directed by Murray Golden. This will be the first of two for him. And written by Robert C. Dennis, this is the sixth of six for him. 
A tense, high-stakes poker game ends with thinly-veiled accusations of cheating, followed by the accuser, Peter Corman, leaving. Outside, he sees a couple of beachgoers frolicking in the water, and then his attention is caught by a van parked on the side of the property. Peter goes to check it out and finds it filled with surveillance equipment being monitored by Mr. Shogi. A couple of cars leave as Peter goes back to the house to confront whoever is left. Mr. Shogi tries to go after him, but shots ring out. Mr. Shogi jumps back into his van and speeds away. Meanwhile, the two beachgoers approach the house to investigate. Inside, they find Peter Corman, shot and dying. Steve arrives on the scene to find that Peter Corman is clinging to life, but the prognosis isn't good. At the hospital, he tries to question him, but he's unresponsive. Peter's wife, Maggie, arrives. It seems the two of them are on a belated honeymoon trip from New York City. Maggie is distraught, but Steve quickly calms her, saying that she needs to talk to her husband and find out what happened to him. Peter responds to Maggie, telling her to tell Lorenzo, before the words fade out into a whisper as Peter dies. Maggie again goes into hysterics, and Steve pulls her from the room, calming her down once again. He asks her who Lorenzo is, and Maggie tells him that it's Peter's brother, and he's arriving today. Steve and Maggie meet Lorenzo at the airport. Steve tells Lorenzo what happened, and Lorenzo is understandably upset. This trip was his gift to his brother and his wife. He's adamant about the killer not getting away. Steve feels the same. He gives Lorenzo his card before he leaves. Lorenzo presses Maggie about what Peter said, and she finally admits that it didn't make sense to her. He said something about being left-handed. Back at the house, Daniel finds evidence of closed-circuit TV cameras. This poker game was definitely rigged. Danny goes to track down the equipment company. At headquarters, Kono and Chin Ho interrogate suspects. Lorenzo comes in and asks to see Steve, presumably to tell him Peter's last words, but he and Danny are currently interviewing Mr. Shogi, who owned the equipment found in the house. He admits to rigging the house and hearing the shots, but he didn't see anything else. He also claims that it was Peter Corman who'd hired him, wanting to get back some money that he felt he unfairly lost. Steve thinks it's a little too convenient that Mr. Shogi is offering up the name of the only man who can't deny it. Shogi is put on ice, and Lorenzo is allowed to see Steve. He asks for an update, and Steve tells him that Shogi says it was his brother that rigged the house, which enrages Lorenzo. He leaves without sharing his information. Steve recreates the poker game, deciding who sat where thanks to the contents of the ashtrays found at each seat. Peter Corman smoked menthols, so they know where he sat. Player A was a gum chewer. Player B was a chain smoker. Player C wore glasses, wiping them with chemically treated lens wipes. Player D smoked cigars. The beach house is a rental and the owner a dead end. However, they find a name and number of a girl named Lilo in a matchbox found on the table. That gives them a place to start. Shogi gets turned loose, and Lorenzo is waiting for him at his office when he arrives. He wants information about the game, and he's willing to pay. For $1,000, Shogi gives up George Bias as the man who organized the game. Once Lorenzo leaves, Shogi places the call and tells the other person that what happened, exaggerating the severity of the encounter, and saying that he gave up Bias, who isn't the guy, but he's getting ready to go back to the mainland, so it doesn't matter. Only it does matter to Lorenzo, who tracks Bias down at the airport and questions him. Bias swears he left before the shooting. Peter lost $3,000 in the game, but Bias also lost $1,800, so he wasn't the one cheating. He says that Larry Puana was the man who told him about the game, and that's who Lorenzo should talk to. Lorenzo asks Bias for a light, and seeing that he's right-handed, lets him make his flight home. Danny meets with Lilo. 
Once she makes Danny as a cop, she reluctantly tells him that Larry Puana is the man who had her number. Danny goes to Puana's office, but he isn't there, hasn't been around, and his secretary is concerned. Puana isn't around because he's meeting with Lorenzo, thinking that he's a client. It's only after Puana starts to feel ill that Lorenzo tells him who he really is and that he's poisoned Puana. For the truth, he'll give him the antidote. Puana swears he wasn't there when Peter was shot, but names the two people who were still at the house when he left, Del Enright and Sam Kwong. Lorenzo gives him the antidote, which Puana takes with his right hand. Seeing that he isn't left-handed, Lorenzo informs him that the antidote is water, and the poison? Ipecac. He'll be fine in an hour. Steve thinks that Lorenzo might be investigating on his own after he gets word that Lorenzo spoke to Bias. It turns out that Lorenzo used to be an underworld enforcer before he quit and went legit. Steve goes to talk to Maggie about her brother-in-law. He knows that Lorenzo is going after the suspects and he needs to know where he is, but Maggie doesn't know. Lorenzo shows up much later and Maggie tells him that Steve knows what he's doing. But that's not going to stop Lorenzo. First of all, I just want to say that I like two characters in this episode that you're not supposed to like. I absolutely adore Mr. Shogi because he is a bullshitter from birth. It is who he is. When Steve is questioning him in the office about the surveillance equipment, he is smooth as ice, fesses up to nothing, and is, as Steve suspects, smart enough to give up the name of a dead man as who hired him because you can't question a dead man. Also, Steve has a great smirk on his face because he knows Shogi is talking shit. It's great. Then later, when he talks to Lorenzo, again, he feigns as much ignorance as he needs to until Lorenzo puts the money on the table and then he gives up George Bias's name. And it's great because after Lorenzo leaves, he calls the other person who we never see. We don't know who he's talking to. He calls that other person and says, Look, with a gun at my head, what option did I have? I tell you, he had a gun. One false word and he would have blown my head off. Look, I'm lucky to be alive to warn you. And then pats, him on the, pats himself on the back for being very clever by giving up the name of a guy who had absolutely nothing to do with it but is going home. So I love Shogi. I shouldn't, but I do. I respect that sort of weasel. I also love Lorenzo because he gets stuff done. The kind of fun aspect of this particular episode is that 5-0 is playing catch-up the whole time. Lorenzo is actually doing more investigating and getting more things done. Granted, not legally, but still happening. He's taking care of business and leaving 5-0 to play catch-up. So it's kind of interesting to watch Steve and the team be at such a disadvantage and be so far behind of what's going on. Now, granted, part of that is because they don't have the information that Lorenzo has because he's insulted that Steve would insinuate that his brother might be involved in his own death. I'm not in the habit of giving progress reports to relatives, Mr. Corman. But I'll tell you this much. The poker game was rigged. That's why your brother was killed. He found out. Maybe that. Or maybe he rigged it himself. That's a lie. It could be. But right now, the only witness I have said that Peter paid him to bug the game. Your witness is a liar. And if you believe him, you're a fool. Anybody accuses Peter of cheating might as well accuse me. The difference is I'm not dead. But on the flip side, you also have the fact that Lorenzo probably wouldn't have the head start he did if he hadn't been at the office when Mr. Shogi was leaving. So he wouldn't have known where to start. 
But still, Lorenzo gets stuff done. And it's the way that he does it because it's, um, so it's John Colicos who's playing Lorenzo. And he has this great, subtle, menacing quality about him when he's playing bad guys. And it really, really works well with Lorenzo here because technically he's not the bad guy. He's what I always think of as the antagonist protagonist because technically he's a good guy. He's the grieving brother of this murder victim. But he's an antagonist because he's kind of getting in McGarrett's way and he's going about things the slightly less legal way of getting things done. But he has such a great menacing quality about him. So when he's going and interviewing these suspects, it's never overt. You just know just by his presence, the way he stands, the way he speaks, you would not want to lie to him. You wouldn't want to cross him. He means business. There's just no doubt. And it's just so much fun to watch particularly when he confronts Larry Puana and he poisons him with Ipecac. Please, please don't let me die. You'll be all right. What did you put in my drink? It's called Ipecac. I've never heard of it. Doctors use it to induce vomiting. It's harmless. What's this antidote? Just water. You'll be all right in an hour. Larry was going to be fine. It was going to be unpleasant, but he was going to be fine. But the fact that he had him completely fooled, thinking that if he didn't get this antidote, he was going to die, and that's why he spilled his guts about Dellen Wright and Sam Kwong. It was just so fabulously done, especially with the payoff of saying, yeah, it's Ipecac. You're going to see your lunch again. Enjoy. So watching Lorenzo take care of business was very enjoyable. But as I said... It puts 5 at a disadvantage. They're basically playing catch-up throughout the entire episode. And I mean, until the very end, they're playing catch-up. Because when Steve's in the hospital with Peter and his wife, and Peter whispers to her to tell Lorenzo left-handed, Steve doesn't hear the left-handed part. And Maggie is apparently so upset because it's Julie Gregg who's playing her. And we've seen her before. She's very soap opera-ish. It's very hysterical, very unhinged, just it's a lot. It's a bit overacting. So when she's questioned outside after her husband dies, she says that she didn't understand what he said. And I guess we're supposed to infer from her mental state that she's just too upset to understand, but I guess maybe if it was on an episode of General Hospital it would work. So that's why later she's able to give Lorenzo that information because the understanding is that she's calmed down somewhat and she suddenly remembers, well, it didn't make sense to me at the time. He said left-handed, but Lorenzo, of course, knows exactly what it means. So to be fair, Steve is operating without this bit of knowledge. However, the way they go about investigating the crime, they find the surveillance equipment, they find Mr. Shogi, so they have a starting place. They recreate the poker game on the board so they find the places, they know kind of who they're looking for. It's their little ticks, basically. The chain smoker, the gum chewer, the guy with the glasses, the guy who smokes cigars. The, there's little things that they're looking for. So they know they're looking for four other people. And then they have the lead of the matchbox, the number of the matchbox. And so, of course, Danny is sent to talk to Lilo. And it, it's a fun exchange because Danny's playing very coy, almost undercoverish, but not really. But it's with his line of questioning that Lilo figures out that he's a cop. But she gives up Larry and 
Danny goes to Larry's office and talks to his secretary and they can't find him, but eventually they do. And that's how Steve knows, okay, George Bias called in to let him know that Lorenzo had talked to them. And then they find out from Larry Kawana that Lorenzo talked to him. So Steve knows there's definitely something up. And that's when they get the file on Lorenzo, which says that he used to be an underworld enforcer and that he did time 22 years ago for, I think, involuntary manslaughter or something like that. It was a lesser murder charge, basically. But he eventually got out of the business and he went legit. Here's the thing. He was charged 22 years ago. He says when he's talking to Steve that his brother was 26 years old. Granted, this is 1970. He looked 26 going on 36. But the point is, is that if his brother was 26, that means when his brother, Peter, was four years old, he was doing time on a manslaughter rap. That is one hell of an age difference between the brothers. Because you have to figure that Lorenzo must have least have been of age when he was being an underworld enforcer. I don't think they would have hired 15-year-olds to do that. So you have to figure he was at least 18, 19, 20 in there. So that is one hell of an age difference. And I hope there are other siblings in between. Otherwise, Peter was a severely late baby. But that was just something that I noticed. But anyway, Steve is now hooked on the fact that he's not just looking for a killer, but he's also looking to stop Lorenzo because he's interviewing suspects. He's also looking for the killer. And it's not going to end well for that person when he finds him. Now, after he's talked to George Bias and he's talked to Larry Puana, that information gets back to Del Enright and Sam Kwong. Now, we're moving into spoiler territory here, so I'm going to avoid it as best I can. And I'll just say, in that conversation, you figure out who shot Peter, and then later Lorenzo confronts one of them who didn't do the shooting, but as a result, someone else shoots the suspect so now, 5 was operating under the assumption that Lorenzo has shot one of the suspects and killed him, which complicates what Lorenzo's doing. Our guest cast isn't complicated, though. In fact, they're quite great. So let's take a closer look at them. And this is your periodic reminder that... I endeavor to pronounce everyone's names correctly. I really am trying, but I'm frequently failing. I'm so sorry. As I said, Lorenzo Corman was played by John Colicos. We'll see him in one more episode. Maybe by then I will be able to pronounce his name better. Probably best known as Count Baltar on Battlestar Galactica. He was also Mikos Cassidyne on General Hospital, and he was the voice of Apocalypse on X-Men the Animated Series. He also turned up in episodes of Star Trek, Mission Impossible, Night Gallery, Longstreet, Mannix, The Magician, Gunsmoke, Harry O, Wonder Woman, Quincy, The Six Million Dollar Man, Charlie's Angels, Vegas, The Hitchhiker, Night Heat, and Star Trek Deep Space Nine. He was in the movies Shadow Dancing, No Place to Hide, The Postman Always Rings Twice, the 1981 version, Phobia, The Changeling, King Solomon's Treasure, Breaking Point, and Scorpio. And he was in the TV movies Goodbye Raggedy Ann, A Matter of Wife and Death, The Paradise Connection, In Defense of a Married Man, and My Father's Shadow, The Sam Shepard Story. Maggie Corman was played by Julie Gregg. This is her second of two episodes. We also saw her in Savage Sunday. Sam Kwong was played by Jack Sue, best known as Detective Sergeant Nick Yamana on Barney Miller. 
He was also Rockwell Rocky Sin on Valentine's Day, a short-lived series with Anthony Franciosa. He also turned up in episodes of Name of the Game, Julia, The Odd Couple, MASH, Policewoman, Ironside, including the Amy Prentice backdoor pilot, and Amy Prentice. He was in the movies Return from Witch Mountain, The Green Berets, Thoroughly Modern Millie, and Flower Drum Song. And he was in the TV movies She Lives and The Monk. Del Enright was played by Arthur Franz. He was Bill Winters on World of Giants and Hugh McLeod on The Nurses. He also turned up in episodes of Bourbon Street Beat, Hawaiian Eye, Rawhide, Wagon Train, Bonanza, 77, Sunset Strip, Lassie, Perry Mason, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, The Invaders, Mod Squad, The FBI, Room 222, Barnaby Jones, and The Waltons. He was in the movies The Championship Season, Sisters of Death, So Long Blue Boy, The Sweet Ride, The Carpetbaggers, The Atomic Submarine, Monster on Campus, and Back from the Dead. And he was in the TV movies Murder or Mercy, F. Scott Fitzgerald in Hollywood, The Amazing Howard Hughes, and Jennifer, A Woman's Story. Shogi was played by Tommy Fujiwara. This is his third of 24 episodes. We also saw him in To Hell with Babe Ruth and Blind Tiger. Lilo was played by Josie Over. This is her second of 16 episodes. We also saw her in the first season episode The Ways of Love. George Bias was played by Mitch Mitchell. This is his second of 15 episodes. We also saw him in Just Lucky, I guess. Peter Corman was played by Steve Logan. He also appeared as himself on an episode of The Virginia Graham Show. Larry Puana was played by Bruce Wilson. This is his third of seven episodes. We also saw him in To Hell with Babe Ruth and Leopard on the Rock. And in an uncredited role, one of the suspects that's being interviewed by Chin Ho is played by Quan Hai Lim. We'll see him in 24 more episodes, but he's probably best known as Lieutenant Tanaka on Magnum P.I. He also turned up in episodes of Hawaiian Eye, The Brian Keith Show, Sanford and Son, The Six Million Dollar Man, Tour of Duty, and Island Son. He was in the movies Goodbye Paradise, Hard Ticket to Hawaii, Uncommon Valor, Seven, the 1979 movie, not the one with Brad Pitt and Gwyneth Paltrow's head in a box, Acapulco Gold, and Inferno in Paradise. And he was in the TV movies the Killer Who Wouldn't Die, and The Islander. Our director was Murray Goldman. In addition to two episodes of Hawaii Five-O, he also directed 10 episodes of One a Dead or Alive, 12 episodes of Death Valley Days, 6 episodes of Bonanza, 5 episodes of Brooks Law, 3 episodes of Honey West, 3 episodes of Get Smart, 6 episodes of Batman, 6 episodes of The Flying Nun, 5 episodes of Mission Impossible, 4 episodes of Sigmund and the Sea Monsters, 11 episodes of Medical Center, and 3 episodes of Trapper John, M.D., he was also an associate producer on 10 episodes of The Twilight Zone, and he wrote two of the episodes of Bonanza that he directed. And that is The One with the Gun. I really dig this episode because it is so different, because we do get to watch how Steve and Five O handle being at a disadvantage, such that they are, and we get to watch Lorenzo go after the suspects involved in his brother's death. And we get to watch someone else other than Steve kind of chase down the bad guy. It's actually really fun to watch Lorenzo go after these guys. And as I said, Mr. Shogi is a joy. Also, this is a very colorful episode. The house where they're playing poker, the room that they're in, bright yellow. Larry Puana's secretary, bright yellow puffy sleeve dress. It's absolutely fabulous. 
everything that Maggie Corman wears is amazing. Just fabulous. There's just so much about this episode that's great and makes it worth your while to watch. I wish I was slim as those leads. Maybe you will be by the time you run them down. You bet the egg fool you home there. And that is episode 22 of Bookum Dano. Two very enjoyable episodes, I think. One is a little bit heavier than the other, but both are really well done and really worth your time. Don't sleep on these gems. Once again, thanks to Shan for the sound clips. Really much appreciated. And thanks to all of you for listening. Your ears are always appreciated, and I hope I show that appreciation enough. If you'd like to find me online, you can do that by going to my blog, kikiwritesabout.com. It is the home of Bookum Dano. And if you want to know my intimate thoughts on Aloha shirts in real time, you can follow me on Twitter at kikiwrites. So don't be afraid to cut connections to toxic friends and relatives. And you know what? Just let Lorenzo handle it. Until next time, aloha.